And I think for me, every time I write a book, I need to say that to myself because it sort of forces me to say like, why does this book matter to me? Like, why does the story matter enough that I'm going to write it whether other people read it or not? Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, Sarah Nicholas. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and the stories authors are sharing with you. If you are, please consider leaving a review on your podcast app or sharing the episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show with a couple of bucks a month, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. Alison Gerber is the author of the critically acclaimed Own Voices novels Braced and Focused, published by Scholastic. Her third novel, Taking Up Space, will be in stores on May 18th, 2021. She has an MFA from the New School in Writing for Children and lives in New York City with her family. Visit her at alisongerber.com or find the links in the show notes. Please welcome Alison to the show. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. So we're going to start by going all the way back to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing? And then how long did it take from there before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? Such a great question. I started writing in 2007 after I was diagnosed with ADHD, which is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. For me, writing was a form of therapy. I had been through a lot and I was struggling to become an adult. I had just graduated from college. I had just received this diagnosis. I really didn't value myself, but at the same time, I recognized that the way I saw myself was not how other people saw me, that I actually created a lot of conflict because I was walking around in the world feeling worthless and stuck in a back brace, which I had been in in middle school. But other people saw this confident facade that I had constructed to protect myself and my feelings, which had been invalidated. But I got to the point where I couldn't pretend anymore. It was hurting me too much, and I was self-destructing. Getting diagnosed with ADHD was the first step for me. It helped me recognize that so many of the ideas I had about myself as someone who was stupid and lazy and careless were because I didn't know the truth about who I actually was. And after I found out that first piece of truth, I was desperate to understand how I got so twisted up that I couldn't even see myself clearly. And I love mysteries. I'm sort of obsessed with them. I started writing to solve the mystery and understand what had happened to me. And writing ended up saving me. It gave me the chance to find my truth and save myself. And as soon as I started, I wanted to be published because I wanted the truth to sort of be known. I wanted to be fully out there. So from 2007, I really didn't start thinking about writing a book for a couple of years. I was writing essays. I was really journaling publishing a couple of magazines and newspaper articles here and there, personal essays. And then around 2009, I started thinking that I wanted to write a book. And so I wrote a really terrible contemporary YA novel, like really, truly awful. But it was a start. It was the first time I'd ever tried to write something big, like lots of pages. From that moment in 2009 to when I started to apply to MFA programs, I started to apply that fall. I really started to take on this idea of, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to publish a book. I'm going to really do this. I'm going to commit to this. And then from there, it, took, it was a journey because I got an MFA and then I did not get a book deal until 2015. So it was a, it was a long process. And I, I mean, every step of the way was interesting and 
complicated and worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was definitely, you know, a long time. Can you tell us a little bit more about the moment that you realized that you wanted to be a published author? I think this idea sort of evolved for me. I don't know that there was one moment that I was like, this is what I'm going to do. There was a moment in a bookstore. I went to one, I went to an author panel and I wish I could remember the author who said this because it was, it was so powerful. It, it sort of stunned me. The author said she was never the most talented writer, but she was the most persistent. And that a lot of people who were more talented, but weren't persistent, sort of fell away and stopped pursuing it. And that this was a job for people who were persistent. And I was like, I'm persistent. I can, that's what I am. I mean, I, I made it through life for 21 years with undiagnosed ADHD. I, I can fight a battle. I know how to do that. And it just felt like the right job for me in this way that like, ho- I like homework. <laughs> so it, there was a fit. I think that was the moment where I was like, there could be a fit here. But I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't at the point where I could accept that I was worthy of that. That took me a lot longer. Hmm. Wow. Once you decided you wanted to be a published author, how did you learn more about the publishing industry, like how it works, how to go about it, how to query, everything like that? So my first step was that I took this class at the New School with Susan Shapiro. It was a writing for magazines and newspapers class. And that's how I learned how to pitch a personal essay. And after doing that for a little while, Sue had suggested to me that an MFA might be interesting. I could teach. I had shown interest in it. And she really supported me and was willing to write a recommendation. And then I actually applied to Columbia and the New School. And I was waitlisted at the New School. And I was rejected from Columbia. And I was devastated. And I called Sue. I was crying. And she said, you know, let me just call since I work, I, you know, I work there. Let me call and see what happened. What's going on. Maybe we, maybe you're on the wait list. Maybe there's a chance. And the head of the program told her that I had applied to the wrong program. Oh, that, (laughs) that he said, you know, she submitted a YA novel. So she should apply to the writing for children and, and teens program. And it hadn't occurred to me. I, I didn't really know very much about the program, but, and I, you know, I went home and I thought about it. And they had offered to reread my application for that year. And so I took the opportunity and I was accepted and really, and really got excited about it. And starting the MFA at the new school, it was a, it's a big, you know, it's a big undertaking. It's a big financial commitment. That's where I got a lot of the information. Now, I will say that there's a way to do this without spending that much money. And I think the, the piece of the MFA that was so valuable was that the new school does this really smart thing. They bring in editors for these Saturday workshops. So you get to meet all different kinds of editors, which is really cool. And it's really interesting to just sit with an editor for an hour and pick their brain with your class of 10 to 14 other students. It's a very small, intimate conversation. You pick up a lot of information. And, you know, my first class was taught by David Levithan. I mean, it's like you just soak in all the, all the inf- information. But, you know, Highlights, SCBWI, there's all these other great organizations that offer access to editors. And you might not be sitting in a room, it might be a virtual conversation, it might be, you know, something over Zoom. But at Highlights, sometimes editors are there. And there's a lot of other outlets that I, had I known about that, I think I could have put together my own sort of program. I was young, there were other things standing in my way, and I'm glad I did the MFA at the new school. But I don't, I I think that the access to editors and sort of just hearing like, what is their job like? 
and sort of thinking about what's the other side of this this industry and what does that look like? I, I wish that I had sort of dug in even more and done even more research because I eventually got there. But there's a lot to there's a lot as authors that we don't always know. And that's helpful to know what it looks like on the other side of the table. It's funny that you mentioned that because on my YouTube show, Pub Talk Live, I recently had Gabriela Pereira, who does DIY MFA. And so that's kind of her whole thing is if you can't afford an MFA, here are the ways that you can go about getting, you know, some of the benefits from it. So check that out if anyone's interested. And that's really cool. I love that. I love that concept. So then what happened after that? Can you break down for us your journey from then to signing your first book contract? Yes. After I graduated from the MFA at the new school, many of my classmates were getting book contracts. I felt a little bit behind. I was definitely on the younger side, having entered a program like this. I was 24 when I started. So that's a little young to go back to graduate school. To be honest, I think that there's a lot of time to go to grad school. I could have waited a little longer, but, and I, I really wasn't, I don't think, emotionally ready for the, for, to be thrown into the, to be published. I wasn't emotionally ready to be published. Let's be honest. <laughs> I had a, I had a, I had a lot of learning, self-learning to do and, and, and growth ahead of me. So I graduated. I really was in a lot of therapy. I was really self-reflecting, trying to figure out how to write a book that would get published. I wrote three books that one got me an agent, but it didn't end up getting moving toward publication. And the other two really were just flops. I mean, they were, they were terrible, <laughs> truly terrible. <laughs> and I think I knew I had to write Braced. I think that there was a piece of me that was so afraid to face what I'd been through. I mean, my scoliosis trauma really started when I was seven, when I started being monitored for scoliosis. And it it really wreaked havoc on every piece of my mental health. And I had just sort of brushed it under the rug and moved forward and never really addressed it fully. It was so painful. I was so afraid. And I also was starting to get to the point where I was more afraid not to address it and not to consider why I had be- how I had become the person I had become. And so when I decided to write Braced, I really walked into that process knowing that it was going to be painful, but that I had to face my truth. And I did it for myself. I didn't write it for the market. I didn't write it for anybody else. And I think I remember I had a really candid conversation in therapy where I said, I might never publish a book, but I still need to write this book. Hmm. And I think for me, every time I write a book, I need to say that to myself because it sort of forces me to say like, why does this book matter to me? Like, why does the story matter enough? that I'm going to write it whether other people read it or not. It has to mean that much. Otherwise, it's if you, you spend a lot of time working on a book and you put a lot of yourself into it. So you have to, it has to really matter. So I started writing Braced and it was painful. I had just finished it and started querying agents in February of 2014. And in, on June 4th, 2014, I got an email from my friend, Amy Ewing, and she sent me an email that said, do you follow Cheryl Klein on Twitter? Because I just saw these tweets. This is Cheryl's tweet. Putting this out there, I'd love to see a novel or graphic novel involving scoliosis. I spent six plus years in a back brace, as do many teens, but I've never seen it represented in YA fiction in any way. 
which to some extent makes sense. It's a situation, not a plot. But Lord, I would have loved a book besides Deanie, which was deeply outdated in the 1990s when I was dealing with it. It was a tricky situation because I had queried agents and I didn't have an offer. I just had like Cheryl Klein sent this tweet out into the world. Mm -hmm. And it felt really relevant to my book because I had written a book about a girl in a back brace. So I went back to a couple of agents who I had references for. Um, so people who are friends of mine who were represented by certain agents, I went back to them and said to those agents and said, you know, this came up. If you'd like to consider the book, I think there'd be an interest from an editor. Uh, I think part of the big, the part of the hurdle that I had with Brace, there were a lot of hurdles, which we will talk about. But one of the big hurdles was a book about scoliosis. You have to convince somebody that we needed another one because there was already Dini. Scoliosis impacts 10% of adolescents, but it was interesting. The editors who ended up being interested were people, were all editors who, who faced chronic illness, which is really interesting. And it, it, it worked out that Cheryl ended up buying Braced and it was an incredible, unbelievable connection and really changed me as a person and an author. But, you know, she also took a big risk in signing a very, very green debut author. So but I think for me, the, the next step after that tweet and after I found an agent, I got a couple of offers and I picked an agent and we went on submission and Cheryl asked for a revision in part because Braced had no plot. <laughs> I had written the situation. And so one of the struggles for me on my journey to publication was really, I didn't understand how to write a book. I was a reader for emotional arts. I read for the feelings. Plot was always sort of a side piece of it for me. I never, re I never read as a writer for plot. And I guess I didn't really know how to do it. So I had a, I had a phone call with Cheryl before um, I did the revision and we talked a lot about plot and I realized I really need to go back and, and read books for plot and understand what is involved in a plot. I don't think I, that piece had clicked for me. And so I went back to the manuscript and I, I added in soccer. So if you know Brace, you know it's about a girl named Rachel who gets a back brace to treat her scoliosis. And that was really what the story was and her evolution to accepting herself and the difficult struggles that she goes through as somebody who's managing a, a condition and a disorder. Um, and it's a story really about family and generational disorders and what it means when you struggle with the same thing that, you're, that your parent struggles with. But there was nothing happened in the book. So I went in and added soccer back in to make something happen and to give Rachel a want and a need and a and, and hope and happiness. There was really, it, the book really lacked for joy. <laughs> and I learned a lot through that process. And so I submitted that revision in November. And then um, Cheryl made an offer at the beginning of March. And that was very exciting. And she changed my life. <laughs> now it's time for the query portion. Can you read your successful query letter for us? Yes, I can. Dear Kate, I hope you're doing well. Kayla Carter and Jess Verdi, my friends and classmates from the new school, recommended that I reach out to you about my middle grade manuscript. I'd be honored if you'd consider representing me. Embraced, 12-year-old Rachel Brooks finds out she has scoliosis and is going to be stuck in a back brace for 23 hours a day to stop the curve in her spine from threatening to leave her permanently curved. In case wearing a plastic bucket in the, around the middle of her body isn't bad enough, her mom is pregnant which means as soon as seventh grade starts, everyone is going to figure out that she's a total freak. 
She's sure her best friends, Hazel and Franny, will only sort of get the whole brace thing, and that once Tate Bowen sees her in, in this thing, there's zero chance he'll ever like her. It doesn't help that her mom and surgeon dad keep telling her how lucky she is to be treated by one of the best spine specialists in the world. Shouldn't they of all people get how awful this is? Think a modern Dini. Thank you for your consideration, Allison Gerber. Nice. Thank you for sharing that. So how has your experience been since signing your first contract? Were there any surprises along the way? I think I was surprised at how many revisions we were going to do of the book. I had some friends who had been published before, so they said, you know, maybe you don't want to reread it again and again and again. I'm a, I'm a bit obsessive. And so I, everything has to be perfect before I hand something in. And I have to really just go over everything. And I don't think I quite anticipated quite how many revisions there were going to be and how many things were going to totally change. But I'm so glad. I feel like I learned so much about what it means to revise a book from the first process. I, I feel like I went in having no idea. Even though I had all of this information, I felt a little bit like I was blindfolded and sort of feeling my way through the process. But I learned a lot and I grew so much. And it's so interesting because I was thinking about the experience that I had with Cheryl as an editor and it was just very powerful. It, it taught me a lot. And right before Brace came out, Cheryl left Scholastic to go to Lee and Lowe. And I think that was the first time I realized, oh, this is publishing is an industry. It's a business. And people go from one job to another job. And then I had seen other people go through it. I had seen other people change editors. But I didn't know how that was going to feel as an author. And so that was sort of the first stumbling block industry-wise. But it wasn't really because David took me on as, a, as one of his authors. And um, it was an adjustment, but a good one. And another learning experience, the process of editing focused, was a big learning experience for me. It was the first time that I really felt ownership in a, over a book in a way that, you know, I felt really in charge. I felt a lot of autonomy, which was another growing experience. I think the biggest hurdle that I've had this whole time, my whole experience has really been just finding the confidence within myself. I think that the biggest surprise is how many people are involved in making the book happen. I'm constantly surprised by that. Every time I like put together my acknowledgements, it takes a lot of people to make a book happen. There are a lot of people that you don't ever really see or interact with. And it, it's sort of amazing how many hands are sort of lifting up each, each story, even at a small house. There are a lot of people that sort of push the book forward and lift it up and get it out into the world. And it's, it's sort of amazing. It's something I... I didn't realize until I was in it, until after the contract was signed, until I started really working on the book, that there was just a lot of people helped to make it happen. Yeah, that's, that's great for people to know because I've had the conversation with writers before where they're like, well, why is my royalty rate so low? And I'm always like, do you know how many people they have to pay? <laughs> like, that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of people. So now we're going to do the quick round. Okay. I call it author DNA. It really has nothing to do with actual DNA, but that's just what I call it. Are you a pantser or a plotter? I'm a pantser. I never know what's going to happen. Nice. Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? A little bit of both. I definitely underwrite the, the whole book, but then I, there are sections that I overwrite. Hmm. Is it always like a specific 
kind of section or? I find that there are sections where I have to write things over and over to get to where what what I'm trying to say, like to find the core of the scene. And so I tend to overwrite those scenes and those moments. And so I have to shrink those back down, but I underwrite in terms of the number of scenes in the book. So I end up during revisions, realizing that there are missing moments Mm. and having to put those moments into the book. Interesting. So I overwrite the actual scenes that I write, but I underwrite the number of scenes that I've written. (laughs) Cool. Do you tend to write better in the morning or at nighttime? I tend to write better in the morning, but I always somehow end up staying up way too late writing. (laughs) So I write both times of day, but I am much better and more focused in the morning. When you start a new story, do you generally start with character or plot or concept or something else first? I always start with character. Usually it's like a scene between two people. Those are the moments that I'm most interested in is how are two people working out a conflict or having two different feelings at the same time. And actually, I still write my books, emotional arc, and then plot. So I write them twice. And then I piece things together. Hmm. Those are the different pieces of a story. And I sort of end up puzzling. And I need to understand the characters, their feelings, why they want the things they want. And I need to have them like live in those feelings a little bit for the first 80 pages over and over and over again until I can then think about, okay, what's the action of the story? Do you prefer coffee or tea? I drink both. I need both. (laughs) I need to start my day with coffee, though. Whenever you're writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? Silence. When it comes to writing your first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or get it right kind of person? I wish I were a get it down kind of person. I always tell myself to be a get it down kind of person, but I am a get it right kind of person. And I actually just rewrote the same 80 pages too many times to admit. I was going to say because of your writing process, it's going to be frustrating. So frustrating. I think accepting my writing process for what it is has really helped me. This is how I write a book. This is what it is. And that's really helped me because I used to fight it. And I think fighting it made it a lot harder for me. And now I just sort of build it in. It's a little easier. What tools or software do you use to draft? Uh, Word and pen and paper. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? I prefer revising more. Because I feel like revising is all the winning. You know, you're like, oh, I can't believe I didn't think of this before. And it's like the magic of, is revising. I mean, drafting can be like that too. I mean, sometimes they feel the same. And sometimes for me, I think drafting feels a little bit more painful because I have such a hard time getting the engine going. But I like them both. I prefer revising. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? I like to go in order. But sometimes I, and I will jump ahead if I know that there's an exciting scene. If I, if I have a vision for what, what ha- might happen a little bit ahead, I sometimes let myself, I usually do it with a pen and paper. I let myself write the exciting scene and then go back and sort of piece my way to that scene because it's fun. <laughs> and you might as well let yourself have fun. <laughs> and last quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? I appear to be an extrovert, but I'm really an introvert. So I like come off as somebody who gets my energy from other people, but really I need to recharge my battery by myself alone in silence. All right. So the show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. We're going to talk about that second cue now. What were some of the worries that you had on your journey and were they realized or did you overcome them or how did they shake out? I never really saw myself as a talented writer. 
I got a lot of negative feedback in school and especially from English teachers. I think somewhere deep in the back of my mind, I believed that they were right about me. Mm. And I thought that sort of you had to be a talented writer in sixth grade to become a published author. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It sounds sort of silly now, but it felt real. Yeah. And I think I I had so much self-doubt in general. I had so much self-doubt to overcome. And that was really my biggest hurdle. And I'm proud of the progress that I've made and how far I've come. And I think I sort of began to realize that everybody who publishes a book comes to it from a different angle. And I came to writing stories from a storytelling perspective. And that's, I was interested in theater. I always was, you know, in a play or writing a play or doing something in the theater. And that was the way that I came into books. And it sort of took me a while to be like, a storytelling is one way that you can become a writer. And that there's not sort of one way. It was accepting the fact that it was a different way in for me. Mm-hmm. All right. And now we're going to talk about the third cue. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of different, interesting, or unique? Other than what we've talked about already. <laughs> I do a lot of handwriting. I, I don't know if it's unique. I write all my dialogue by hand. I find that when I try to write dialogue on a computer, it sounds like a robot. And I'm not really sure why, but it comes out, for me, it comes out like people talking when I take out a piece of paper and a pen. So I write everything else. I type everything else, but my dialogue, I always write down. Yeah, I think it's it's the mix that's unique because I feel like a lot of people write by hand and a lot of people obviously type, but I haven't heard anybody really mix it up like that. <laughs> All right. When you were in the lowest parts of your journey, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? I think ultimately some of the lowest points for me were after I graduated from graduate school. I was about two years out and feeling really frustrated and discouraged. And everybody else I knew who I graduated with had a book deal, was really in the mix. I felt behind and I was trying to write brace. And, you know, sometimes I would feel like I could do it. And sometimes I would feel like I was never going to be able to do it. And ultimately for me, I mean, I always had had a fight in me. That's just the kind of person I was just sort of built that way. I don't know if I was built that way or if the world just put me in that position, but I had a sort of persistence. I wasn't going to give up, but ultimately I was writing a story that I thought mattered. And I was writing a story that I felt like I could write well, and it was my story to tell. And so I think that gave me a little bit of determination and the strength to keep going and to block out the possibility that I might fail. And I think a lot of it for me was just blocking out the worry about that piece of it. And I really tried not to think about how would I query and how would I go on submission while I was writing. And even now, I I still do that. I think the publishing piece of it is one thing and the writing piece of it is another thing. And I try really hard to separate those two things. I sort of try to have tunnel vision. I think it's actually one of the great advantages of having ADHD is that I've had to spend a lot of time thinking about how do I put a distraction into a bucket and leave it there and move on to the next thing. And transitioning is such a big challenge for me. I've had a lot of practice at doing that in a thoughtful way. And so I think I decided when I'm writing, I'm writing. And when I'm doing publishing stuff, I'm doing publishing stuff and the two shall not mix. Mm. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you feel like you made along your way to publication? The biggest mistake that I made was I found Twitter to be very overwhelming for lots of reasons. But I think 
a piece of it is also just the way that I learn and the way that I function in the world. Twitter is constant. There was a lot going on. I was really overwhelmed, but I, I really regret that I didn't engage earlier. I missed out on meeting a lot of interesting gatekeepers, librarians, teachers, booksellers, and being part of a dialogue that is really important. If I'm honest, it took a lot of courage for me to sort of engage in Twitter at all. And I'm proud that I gave it a shot because I've really met a lot of people by being on Twitter and been in part of some dialogue that's really helped me. And I'm glad that I gave it a chance. I wish I had done it earlier. It really wasn't until recently that I was there at all. It felt really overwhelming. And I'm, I wish I had found a way to get help with that overwhelming feeling earlier. And I had a very, very kind librarian friend who actually said to me, you know what, you tweet and I'll retweet. And it gave me a little bit of confidence to say, okay, like I can, like there's somebody who I know is going to like and retweet my stuff and who's going to help me find the right dialogues to be part of. And that, that was really, really helpful. And I wish I had asked for that earlier. And that's how we connected to do this podcast is on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons that you learned on your journey to publication? The most important thing I learned on my journey was that you have to really believe in whatever story you're telling. You have to think it's important and you have to think it matters and that it matters for kids. If you want to write books for kids, the story has to really be impactful. You have to stand behind it. And for somebody who really lacked a lot of self-confidence for a long time, that was a really hard process to accept. Like, this is my book and my name is the only one on there. It took me a while to realize that, that like my editor's name wasn't on there and it's my name. So I have to stand behind everything that's in this book and feel good about it and feel proud of it. It feels like a huge accomplishment, but it felt like a big challenge at one point. And now I'm like, I get to stand behind this book. I get to, you know, say all these things that are going to impact kids and help. And so I think if you're somebody who's, you know, on your journey to publication, think of that as an exciting challenge that you get to, you know, tell your story and speak to kids and change them. That's instead of thinking of it as something that's like really overwhelming and scary, to think of it as an opportunity. I wish I had done that earlier and I'm and I'm glad I got there just in time. That's like a mind shift from I want to publish this book too. I want to tell this story. I think that mind shift for me was what made me an author. This is the part of the podcast that I call the acknowledgement section. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. So who are some of the people and even organizations who helped you along the way and how? I think because I have undi- I had undiagnosed ADHD for 21 years, I learned very early on that you just have to ask for help from everybody and that nobody gets anywhere on their own. I'm a sort of interesting person where if you've helped me ever, I remember (laughs) and I will pay it forward. And like, you won't be able to get rid of me because I'm just like thanking you all the time in any way, even the smallest little way. So the list would be, I mean, the list is so long there. It would be impossible to say everyone. (laughs) I'm just going to say a couple of the people who I feel like I haven't really had a chance to acknowledge. I mean, first of all, Cheryl Klein picked me. She took a big risk on me. She rallied behind me. She taught me. There's not enough ways to really thank her for how she changed my life. It's like very emotional. Um, I feel like her confidence in me gave me a confidence in myself that 
She was a teacher that I never expected to have and one who I'm forever grateful for. Ultimately, Curvy Girls Scoliosis Foundation getting behind Braced had a huge impact in getting Braced into the hands of girls who wear back braces. I want everybody to read Braced. I want everybody to read Focus. I want everybody to read Taking Up Space. But it really helped to make sure that the kids who were going through this experience of wearing a brace and really feeling broken the way that I was feeling broken, that they got access to the book. That made a huge difference. There are so many librarians, booksellers, and educators who have championed all of my books and championed me. And some of them I know, and some of them I know that I don't know. Rebecca Weber was the very first librarian who ever reached out to me and told me that my book was meaningful and explained to me why. And I think about the very first email that I got from a librarian and and how I know that there are like thousands of other librarians who also are feeling that way and getting my books into kids' hands. And I just, the joy and like, I just feel so grateful to each and every one of them because I know that they have a lot of power to make sure that kids get access. And that's really, I mean, truly why I write because I was really lost and I really wanted to tell stories that would help kids to feel less alone. Well, I didn't expect to cry. I know, sorry. <laughs> Do you need a minute? <laughs> no, I feel better now. I feel great now. <laughs> yeah, I started tearing up a little bit. I had learned a while back that, because I know that like pressing your tongue against the top of your mouth prevents you from clenching your jaw, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something I've been using for a while. And I tweeted, I tweeted about it randomly. And I tweeted about it and someone's like, it also helps you to stop crying. And so I just did it. <laughs> Does it really work? Yeah. Well, at that time it worked. If it was like a sobbing situation, I don't know if that would work. But <laughs> what are we crying in my next sobbing situation? Yeah. <laughs> I'm more curious than anything else. <laughs> Can you tell us about your latest release, Taking Up Space? Taking Up Space is about a girl who doesn't think that she matters unless she wins and plays her best in basketball. Sarah doesn't feel valuable on her own or worthy of love or food or help, in part because the ground she's standing on isn't steady and the adults she depends on aren't always reliable. Taking Up Space is about how Sarah finds the courage to believe in herself and stand up for what she deserves. It's a book that will ignite multi-generational, honest conversations about how we value ourselves. And it will give readers the chance to feel seen and heard and validated. It will also encourage readers to ask for help. This book is based on my own experience with disordered eating and body image struggles. And it will be in stores on May 18th. Thank you for coming on the show, Allison. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Yeah. I'm so glad I made it onto Twitter so we could connect. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Allison's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on your podcast app, tell your friends, or share this episode on social media. And if you're interested in supporting the show with a couple bucks a month, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. If you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
If you're enjoying this show, please check out Pub Talk Live. Pub Talk Live is a publishing talk show broadcasting live to YouTube every second and fourth Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern, but it is also syndicated as a podcast. Agent Chat Live is a spinoff of Pub Talk Live that features casual chats with literary agents with the intention of helping writers get to know the agents a little bit better. Check out both on YouTube or the podcast app of your preference.